Have you been out birding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. We are in the thick of it now. No more buildup, no more anticipation. If you are not seeing spring birds returning neotropical migrants right now, you're not trying. Uh, I've been spending my time working on my local patches for the Fantasy Birding Yard Squad competition that I'm doing once more. Uh, my team is the Raven Lunatics, the rare double pun. Uh, we've been holding on to this the third place by the, the skin of our teeth as of the time that I record this. If you're not familiar with the Fantasy Birding Yard Squad, uh, this year we did something a little bit different. There was a draft, so team captains got to pick the participants based on where they live or, or possible species or, or whatever. I wasn't a captain, so I don't know the criteria. But um, anyway, the competition as a whole, I can sort of take or leave. My entire motivation, the only thing I've been trying to do, has been to have the best list among the other birders on my team in the eastern U.S., of which there are several. I, I am only trying to justify my selection in the uh, whatever round I was in. I actually don't even remember anymore. Uh, my competition is my teammates. Uh, they probably don't want to hear that, or maybe they don't care. Uh, whatever birds I can add to the group list... Just a bonus, I'm, I'm just trying to beat them. But I do have to thank them for, for getting me out. Yard Squad birding has led directly to two county birds for me. A merlin that flew over while I happened to be standing in the right place at the right time, as is the case for that bird frequently, and a Kentucky warbler in my neighborhood patch, which is one of the more difficult warblers in my county. It is one I had been wanting to see for some time, not only for the county tick, but just because Kentucky warblers are among the best of the ABA area's warblers. I will hear no argument on that. Top shelf warbler. So to celebrate, I have another pileated woodpecker story this week. It is from Lorena in Toronto, Ontario. Pileated woodpecker, our 2021 ABA bird of the year. That'll be at the end of the show. But first, let's talk about another group of charismatic birds. John Dunn is a writer and a nature guide, it is not the John Dunn that North American birders might know. This one comes from the UK. His newest book is The Glitter in the Green, In Search of Hummingbirds. It's a really enjoyable look at, at hummingbird obsession, both in the past and the present. He joins me to talk about his book. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of April, beginning of May, 2021. One first record for the period from New Hampshire, where a Virginia's warbler was discovered in Rockingham County. The species is almost certainly underreported in the East, but the last several years have seen it turn up in a number of Eastern states and provinces. Uh, relatively recent records come from Maine, Ontario, Virginia, Maryland, Tennessee, Alabama. It's one of those species that is, is pretty easy to overlook, but once people start expecting it, maybe birders are finding it more often. A quick note as to the name, you know I like epidemic birds. Uh, the Virginia refers not to the state, but to Virginia Anderson, who was the wife of an army surgeon who collected the bird and who was stationed at Fort Bergwin, New Mexico, 
Virginia is also in the bird's scientific name. So say what you will about eponyms, I guess. At least we're not saddled with Anderson's warbler. No offense to all the Andersons listening. No other first or ABA area blockbusters this week, but several lower level rarities. And to get up to speed on all that, please check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also join our rarity sharing Facebook group, ABA Rare Bird Alert, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Among the many bird families in the world, hummingbirds, perhaps more than any other, seem to elicit a strange sort of mania. People might love birds and birding, but they seem to absolutely adore hummingbirds. And this seems to have been true for as long as human beings have been aware of them. Writer John Dunn would probably put himself in that group and his new book, The Glitter in the Green in Search of Hummingbirds, is is part history, it's part travelogue, part quest to see as many of the world's hummingbirds as possible, including some of the most iconic species on Earth. He's with me from his home in Shetland uh, to talk about it. Welcome, John. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I I think listeners can tell maybe from the way that you speak that you're you're not from the United States or Canada. Um, how does like a nature keen kid from the UK get enthralled by hummingbirds? Okay, um, I have to give you Exhibit A warblers as my reason <laughs> for loving hummingbirds. You guys have fantastic warblers. You, We're lucky in you, that regard. Yeah. You are. You do good warblers. Us, not so much. Our warblers, <laughs> if any of your listeners have, have been birding in, in the UK or Europe, tend to be brown and not that exciting. And that kind of goes for an awful lot of our birds. I mean, we have some fantastic birds, do not get me wrong. But at the end of the day, if a British birder comes across to the Americas, we're blown away by your warblers. We're blown away by your birds, full stop. And Growing up as a little kid in the southwest of England, I'll be honest, I wasn't a birder to begin with. I, I saw butterflies mm-hmm. were my big thing to begin with because, you know, those guys are really bright and colorful. And mm-hmm. I'm a bit like a bowerbird. I'm attracted to color. <laughs> I like bright stuff. And then I started to get into orchids and other wildflowers. And the birds kind of came after that. And if I'm perfectly honest, It was only when I went to the uh, Natural History Museum in London and I saw a case of stuffed hummingbirds, of taxidermied hummingbirds, that I realized that there were birds out there which weren't kind of dull. And these guys were absolutely amazing. They were so bright and colorful and iridescent. And that's where the seed was sown. I, I just fell for them really hard. Yeah, it's easy to do. You know, even in a place here um, where I, well, I mean, I, where I live, we only have the one regularly occurring hummingbird and occasionally some some Western vagrants. But yeah, you know, people just really love hummingbirds. Even people that wouldn't call themselves birders mm-hmm. will put up a hummingbird feeder and, you know, look forward to the return of the hummingbirds Absolutely. Uh, in April. Yeah, I, I found a lot of people when I was reaching out to folk just in the course of researching the the book, I found people, it, hummingbirds just lit a spark within people. Mm-hmm. And I had f- people all over the US contacting me and telling me about a hummingbird, which made a huge difference to a parent's um, retirement or sparked an interest in birds where one didn't exist before. And they seem to touch something inside people, which no other bird family really does. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's almost like the, I don't really have any sort of theory as to why that is, but maybe it's, you know, the the sort of impossibility of a hummingbird. <laughs> you know, we have sort of an idea in our mind of what a bird is, and it, that's a very broad category, Absolutely. obviously. But hummingbirds seems to like be on the outside of even what we imagine birds. To yeah, be. It's, it's, it's so so strange. Yeah, there's there's this in, this really great birder um, and writer, a guy called Tim D, who when I was chatting about hummingbirds, he described them to me as as almost birds 2.0. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. as if they're kind of upgraded. They're some amazing <laughs> other bird, and and yeah. that's that's so true, isn't it? They're just unlike anything else. Yeah, you know, obviously people living today are are not the first ones to sort of succumb to the charms of hummingbirds. Uh, though it's a lot less invasive to watch them at feeders than it is to put them on their hat. It's you you talk <laughs> a lot about sort of those historical digressions and context of of people's obsession with hummingbirds, but um yeah, there's some really fantastic and and often very strange ways that people I know exhibited this interest in hummingbirds. Yeah, it's it's, it's we've almost been consumers of them. From day mm-hmm. one, we've obviously been totally inspired by them. So, if you go back to the Aztecs, they utterly venerated hummingbirds in mm-hmm. in in the sense of of their their gods and their deities. Yeah. Hummingbirds had a, a a very high place there, and and yet at the same time, they used their feathers. Their their uh, craftsmen, their amantecas, used to create um, artworks and um, shields clad with hummingbird feathers so they they were using these feathers as a very visual thing and they they placed mm. a similar value in in feathers generally so not just hummingbirds but but all types of of colorful bird feathers they gave them a similar value to to gold and precious stones mm. and through the centuries um, i mean the, the the arrival of the spanish in 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 the americas obviously wasn't a great thing for for the <laughs> americas as a whole but they just picked up the baton where the 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 the, the native peoples had left off and started exporting um, hummingbird feathers in Christian iconography. The Catholic yeah. Church was a great consumer of hummingbirds. Yeah, I found that so so shocking. Almost. Yeah, well, maybe not, it? but like you know, because obviously you know, gold and silver and precious jewels and all that stuff were were very important to all the you know, colonists and, and mm-hmm. conquistadors and all that came over here that came over to the Americas. But the the fact that they that hummingbirds were included in that number was was surprising to me. I know. They they were they were just another attractive loot to send back yeah. to the old yeah. world. And it just didn't stop. It just that sort of that lust for 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 hummingbirds just changed and 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 um evolved as the centuries passed and so mm-hmm. once we we hit the 19th century um the the victorians in britain but but also their contemporaries in in other parts of europe were mm-hmm. just massive consumers of hummingbirds and you mentioned them being sat on a hat i mean oh my god the numbers are staggering the yeah, the the, the, the there were millions of hummingbirds sold corpses sold every year in the in the feather auction or the bird auctions in in london but but also in paris and new york and so close to home here the royal society of the protection of birds was founded really in a response to the feather trade and there's a similar heritage with audubon as well in in the u.s so hummingbirds kind of their, their death wasn't totally in vain back then 
you know, when I think of, you know, Audubon's history, I always thought of, um, I didn't necessarily think of hummingbirds as part of it, though it totally makes intuitive sense. Um, you know, a lot of the, the big worry was uh, wading birds, you know, egrets and herons with their kind of breeding plumes and stuff. But it makes sense that a hummingbird, especially when you consider how small they are, yeah. and how easy it would be to add them as an accent, all that stuff. Yeah, the, 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 the thing about the hummingbirds in, in the, the hat trade, they were really affordable. Yeah, and right. that's kind of shocking, but you could pick up a hummingbird for a few cents or a few pennies. And if you were quite a poor um, woman, you could still afford to accessorize a very plain hat with a hummingbird, whereas you couldn't afford an egret's plume or a, an ostrich feather. And so, unfortunately, they were they were kind of the the skittles of of, <laughs> of of the feather trade. You know, they were they were bright, they were colorful, and they were cheap. And you yeah. could just slap them on a hat and accessorize them, or a brooch or earrings. Yeah. I mean, my God, the the feather trade went out of its way to to keep sort of redefining what a hummingbird could be used for. <laughs> so weird. You know, I was actually really surprised to find out something like that is still going on. That may be my naivete like you went to some of these dark corners of local markets to find this continued trafficking of hummingbirds and hummingbird parts what was that like i i was i was the same as you nate i did not expect this at all when i set out to to look at hummingbirds i thought you know what a joyous wonderful journey this is going to be the dark stuff is going to be consigned to history um and it's going to be an interesting footnote and actually to 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 experience seeing hummingbirds strung up like like chilies essentially um just there to be bought and consumed i mean it's the first time i'd witnessed wildlife crime in the flesh mm-hmm. i like I, I i say that I, in europe there's a, a real problem with um digging up wild orchids that's that's quite a big thing still and i've i've turned up at, at at places in the mediterranean and found holes where there should be orchids wild orchids growing yeah. but that's kind of after the event, um, and so to to walk into a, a botanica in on the the, the U.S. Mexican border, and have some a shopkeeper with the utmost sincerity, and and you know she was she was lovely, offer offer me uh, a chuparosa, a, a a hummingbird as a love charm. That was that was really kind of it knocked me sideways. If I'm honest, I, I just did not expect that to go on. And as soon as you scratch the surface and realize that stuff's happening, you, you look a little deeper and it's happening on, on, a, on a really big scale. It's still yeah. a, a genuine problem even now. Yeah, amazing. Um, we'll, we'll take a little happier turn here. <laughs> yeah, let's so, do that. Let's brighten yeah, things so, up. You know, birding specifically for hummingbirds is a little bit different than regular birding because it's a <laughs> lot of, you know, finding a feeder, finding a flowering plant, just kind of waiting is sure. that a type of birding that appeals to you or <laughs> did it appeal to you before or was okay. it sort of a change because your focus was hummingbirds now yeah it's you to, to answer that question let's look where i live i live in the shetland islands <laughs> off the it's halfway between scotland and norway effectively for anyone who's not aware of where shetland is and it's not where i'm from i'm from the west country from the south of england the southwest and 20 years ago, I moved to Shetland and I, I, I did that for one reason only, and that was birds. I, I, mm-hmm. I moved here because it is arguably the best place in Europe to see bird migration happening and specifically the rarities to turn up. Mm-hmm. And we get birds 
from everywhere, from Siberia, from the Americas. We're like a crossroads from the Arctic and from the South. So, you know, I, I am a birder. And <laughs> there's, if, if, if there's one thing I love doing, above all, it's walking out of my back door and finding something like a, I don't know, a palace's grasshopper warbler or some <laughs> really unthinkable rarity on my doorstep. So I am all about finding my own birds. I love doing that. And as you rightly say, <laughs> looking for hummingbirds is not that birding. But it's, it's a bit like hummingbirds loving nectar, isn't it? It's kind of a sugar fix. I, I, there is yeah. something really satisfying about birding being easy once in a while. <laughs> yeah. And no, so, and, 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 and I mean, my God, how, how gorgeous are hummingbirds? So yeah, it's, it's, it's like having a, a, a kind of a, a really illicit fix of birding. It's like some sort of drug rush. <laughs> <laughs> but oh my god i not every hummingbird was that easy so you know yes some a lot turn up at feeders but others you, you know you have to go the extra mile to see them and that appeals to the kind of the the hunter in me mm, the hunter gatherer yeah. sure there's certainly some you know amazing iconic species that you had the opportunity to to come in contact with was there mm -hmm. one species that was you know, had this had this kind of perfect combination of the rarity you're searching for, but also the writer in you, the narrative was also yeah. really <laughs> fascinating as well. Yeah, and I, I there was, and it I guess it wasn't the one I expected it to be, um, mm -hmm. and that was kind of a thing all about my journey with the hummingbirds. They kind of confounded me at every turn. <laughs> I, I I expected it to be marvelous spatula tail. Um, mm -hmm. And and don't get me wrong, when I saw my first, my God, it was wonderful. I, I my jaw literally dropped. And yeah, spectacular bird. Yeah, and I I'd seen photos, I'd seen footage, all of that stuff, and you know I knew that I really wanted to see a marvelous spatula tail, and it was great, and it was everything I expected it to be. But the one which I guess huh, appealed to the romantic in me. Mm -hmm. was was the Juan Fernandez fire crown out on mm -hmm. Isla Robinson Crusoe off the coast of Chile, a few hundred miles out into the Pacific. And it was one which, you know, it's, it's birders, you know, hardcore neotropical birders, everyone knows about this bird, but by the same token, it's not one of the sort of the, the ones which the general public are perhaps aware of. And yeah. until I started kind of diving deep into hummingbirds, it wasn't one I'd heard of. And then suddenly you 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 start to, to learn about this incredible bird that's out there and, and the, the fact that the sexual dimorphism between the yes. male and the female for you know decades, people thought they were two separate species. They're so yeah. different. And, yeah. and I mean, yeah, lots of birds have that dimorphism, of course, but the female Juan Fernandez firecrown is such a stunning bird, arguably better looking than the male. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because, you know, um, hummingbirds have pretty extreme sexual dimorphism so yeah. you know the females are tend to be a little more drab but yeah no juan fernandez fire crown this is amazing the <laughs> female is it's totally different totally different oh yeah and it is uh, it is a stunning bird as stunning as you say perhaps even more stunning than the male which is a in itself a pretty amazing looking an bird. absolute knockout bird yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so i mean that alone was and and the fact it it it, it's such an isolated endemic bird. Yeah, the story. All, all of yeah. all of that stuff was attractive, but the, the 
when you look into to where it's actually found, and this as a writer is, you know, I love telling stories. I, I love, mm-hmm. I love the context of birds as well as the birds themselves. Yes. And so, I mean, we've all heard of, of Defoe's Robertson Crusoe, but this is the island which, which, which that story was born upon. And this was a, a sailor in, in, in the early 18th century, Alexander Selkirk, a Scot who was marooned there, abandoned there by, by the, the captain of the ship he was the navigator upon. And he spent years there hiding from the Spanish when they turned up to, 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 to restock their boats on, on the island. Um, he even hid up a tree when a couple of Spanish sailors who were pursuing him um, were, were after him and they stopped to, to, to urinate underneath the tree he was hiding <laughs> in. I mean, the, the stories go on and on, but it, the romantic in me, you know, I, I wanted to go there. And, and also, I mean, let's be honest, I live on an island. I look at my right, ki- I look yeah. at my kitchen window, and there is nothing but sea until Norway, and so I, I like islands. I get islands. Islands are cool. So I wanted to go there and see this bird, and it was it was fabulous. It had everything. It had all the drama you'd hope for. They're they, they're not coming to feed us. They're they're feeding on on flowering plants there in a really tiny corner of the island because a lot of the island is pretty arid. It's practically desert. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one end there, there is vegetation and these birds feed there and breed there as well. And yeah. the males were easy to see. They, they weren't too hard, but for a few days, the female, I, I couldn't find one. And, he, you know, the sort of the mounting drama of the mm-hmm. thing. And eventually when I did find one, that was fantastic. But in the, in the course of, of, of that sort of that time, I was meeting the guys who are working on the island from a, an organization called Oikonos. Um, they're working on conservation on the island for shearwaters um, and the hummingbirds as well. And it was really sobering to talk to them. And I'd, I'd gone there knowing that the, the, the hummingbirds were, it was a small population, perhaps a thousand birds. And to, to have the, the, the guys who actually are working on the conservation on the island just laugh and say, oh, You've been reading the bird life statistics. There's 400 birds. And we know this because we find every single nest every year now. So we can be quite sure. And it's almost like the perfect storm. These birds are up against, and, and it's all our doing as, as mankind. There are rats, there are mice, there are feral cats, dogs, um, overgrazing from sheep and goats and horses and cows. There's a dwindling um, habitat because there's been eucalyptus planted where there was once mm. native forest. And just as if all of that wasn't enough. Oh, I forgot. Sorry. Co- Coatamundi. There are Coatamundi introduced <laughs> on the island as well. Why would you on an island? Would you, the, what I was it told while I was... Sense. It doesn't. And what I was told was the, the island was made a national park a few decades ago. And apparently someone introduced Coatamundi to make it more interesting <laughs> what are you mad but also and and, and it's, it's 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 so, it's so typical of, it's like a, a a metaphor for for us and our 10 10 10 year of the world as a whole some it's also stuff that's kind of done with good intentions or or yeah. unthinkingly another island at some point in the past um decided that because there were so many herbivores grazing on the island to protect his vegetables, it would be a really great idea to introduce brambles um, as a, a stock-proof fence, which would bear fruit. 
And so, you know, he could eat the blackberries every year and, and he'd keep the, the animals out of his garden. And the, the reality now is that these blackberries are all over the island because every right. bird which likes a blackberry obviously eats them, spreads the seeds, yeah. and, and they're, they're actually outcompeting the understory in, in the remaining fragments of, of native forest. So, I mean, it's, it sounds so desperately bleak, doesn't it? And, yeah. and it is. But at the same time, I mean, this was a bird which caught me by surprise because I, it was beautiful, it was wonderful, it was everything I hoped it would be in a romantic place. But there was that chastening feeling that I was actually looking a bird in the eye which could very well be extinct within my lifetime. Yeah. And, and that was really poignant, very bittersweet. And, and I, I still feel really uneasy about, about that. It, 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 it's upsetting and I wish that someone could do something about this because... So you, 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 there are these conservation projects out there, you know, the, 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 the big stuff, the obvious totemic stuff, the giant pandas, the tigers, mm -hmm. and so on. And, you know, people really buy into that. But who cares about a hummingbird on a little island out in the Pacific? And, and what would need to be done to actually address the problems, the, the, the multitude of problems which are besetting it? I actually don't think that it will ever be addressed. And I, I, I fear yeah. for them. And that's, that's, you know, that's hard. Yeah. I, I really like the character studies of the sort of the regular people throughout the tropical Americas that have sort of <laughs> inadvertently become hummingbird caretakers for certain species. Um, do you find that there are certain personality traits, certain kinds of people that this happens to, or is it really sort of a crapshoot who the hummingbirds find? <laughs> I, I think you're right. It actually just takes, um, a hummingbird to, to cross over the path of of somebody to to to, to engender that 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 dedication and and love mm. because I I I found hummingbirds with with gardens planted for them in the center of Mexico City which is is a pretty urban hard place for hummingbirds mm -hmm. and you know wherever I went I I I encountered people who had fallen under their spell and I mean. One guy in particular stands out for me, and this was um, a lovely guy, Senor Jonas uh, da Bronzo in, in Brazil, who had retired from Sao Paulo to um, a little corner of the um, Atlantic forest. And he, he'd gone there basically to, to be a hermit. He said as much to me. He said, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I'd, you know, I'd had enough. I'd worked all my life and I just wanted to have a quiet retirement. And he bought a, a little house in the middle of nowhere at the end of a very long track. And he was in his garden one day and he's just heard this round of applause from the track. And he looked <laughs> up and there were a few um, British or American birders standing there applauding with joy because they'd, they'd just seen festive coquette. <laughs> um, this you know, wonderful emerald green and white spangled hummingbird and he just had no idea. He'd stuck a few feeders up and was enjoying the hummingbirds coming, but he wasn't really paying attention to what he was getting. And and now, you know, every, so many birders have made a pilgrimage to his garden to to see his hummingbirds. And and the, it was lovely to to see the care that he was giving them. And he he said to me something which was I found really interesting. He said, you know, it's hard to go away now. I can't leave the house because someone has yeah. to care for the hummingbirds. And he sounded kind of wistful, but at the same time, I sort of thought, <laughs> you're actually really quite, you, you, you love caring for them. I don't think this is really a problem. Yeah, that, no, that story was fantastic too. They, like, I, I love the part where he, um, 
I don't know, we, we cared for like the injured hummingbirds because, you know, hummingbirds oh, are constantly yeah. fighting and battering at each other. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the, the nature of the of the group of birds. The beast, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but he's sort of taking these birds that are the losers perhaps in the fight and, and kind of nursing them back to health, getting them back, back into the game, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And and I mean, this, the story about the hermit, which which he'd he'd picked up stunned and 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 had had you know kept fed it until it recovered and it flew off and this all happened in the course of just a few hours the following day this hermit found him again <laughs> and just came and chattered in his face and until he he he, he stood by a feeder and, and the other hummingbirds kept their distance and this hermit came and fed and and it, right enough he said to me you know you can see videos of this if you search online and sure enough um there they are on youtube um, he, he just cups the feeder in his hands and the hermit straight into the orbit of his hands and feeding. <laughs> and, and, you know, they're, they are really not, uh, they're not stupid. They're sassy, yeah. bright birds. I, I have one more question for you. And I know sure. it's sort of hard to come up with uh, a favorite of the hummingbirds. You've seen, <laughs> you have sort of given a, uh, a, a little, a few, um, you're, you're welcome to share if you like, but as a writer and someone who obviously loves language, what is your favorite hummingbird? name because oh, there are some pretty spectacular hummingbird names out there yeah there are aren't really there? went to the thesaurus when they were coming up <laughs> well, hummingbirds yeah and of course it was that it was john gould who this mm-hmm. brit this british I, I don't know what to call him really i want to call him an author but he he was he was a businessman john gould who who monetized so many different birds um certainly an eccentric <laughs> yeah he was and and he, he saw something in hummingbirds which he could make money from, for sure. And he gave them a lot of, of the names which we now know them by to this day. And yeah, he, he lent heavily into to heraldry and um, gemology. There are so many gemstones, sapphires and emeralds mm-hmm. and so on, rubies. All of this stuff's out there. And yeah, you're right. The, the names are an absolute gift for anyone who loves language. And I, I guess for me... There's one name which both is is wonderful because it it has a bit of everything in it. It has color, it has texture and heraldry, um, but also the bird itself matches it because some of the names are a little right. bit superlative and they kind <laughs> yeah, of, yeah, yeah. yeah, they oversell the bird in question. But Velvet Purple Coronet, oh my God, yeah. what a bird. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It, texture, it's, color. Yeah. All of it, yeah. <laughs> it's it's got the lot, and I mean, I, my encounter with one in Ecuador to this day remains one of those those heart stopping wildlife moments. Which, I mean, never mind being a bird or just any sort of wildlife encounter. You having having one of these birds approach you out of the darkness at dusk and 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 just hover within inches of your face. That that was that was magnificent. Um, yeah, just a wonderful moment. The Glitter in the Green In Search of Hummingbirds is a continents-spanning journey to see some of the world's most incredible birds. It's out now. John Dunn wrote it. It is packed full of fascinating hummingbird facts and wild hummingbird experiences. Please check it out. Thank you so much, John, for joining me today. Thank you, Nate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hi, my name is Lorena, and I'm from Toronto, Ontario, and this is my affiliated woodpecker story. So the Pileated Woodpecker is actually my spark bird and also my husband's spark bird. The first time uh, that we saw one, we were in the Smoky Mountains on a camping trip in April uh, 2012. 
uh, at our campsite. Um, there was a little stump on the edge of the campsite and a pileated woodpecker just came and landed right on the stump and it was just a few meters away from us. Um, so obviously we thought, wow, that's such a beautiful bird. What is that? It's, you know, it's so big and it's so colorful. We took a picture, kind of forgot about it for a little bit. And then, um, the next month in May, we were at my husband's parents' uh, cottage at Rondo, which is a birding hotspot in Ontario that juts out into Lake Erie. And uh, because it was May, it was the Festival of Flight, so there were birders everywhere. And uh, even though we you know, both loved nature and camping and hiking, we'd never really gotten into birds before, but we were just kind of you know, looking around at all these birders, kind of frantically rushing around, looking at different birds. And uh, we went to the visitor center and, you know, they had different guidebooks and field guides. So we just thought, okay, let's look up that woodpecker we saw last month. So we ended up looking up the woodpeckers. We found the page and we decided, okay, yes, we definitely saw either a pileated or an ivory-billed woodpecker. That's definitely what we saw. And so then we were just discussing, oh, which one was it? Could definitely be the ivory-billed, could definitely be the pileated. So I just laugh now thinking, all the birders around us, what they must have thought if they overheard us, you know, saying we saw an ivory-billed woodpecker the month before in the Smoky Mountains. So it's pretty funny now. Um, so yeah, so that was our spark bird. And after that, uh, we got, we really got into birding. And so I just have to thank that one pileated woodpecker that landed on that stump at our campsite uh, for just opening up my eyes to the wonderful world of birding and helping me start to notice all these awesome birds that are always around me that I never noticed before. Thank you so much, Lorena. If you have a pileated woodpecker story to share, record it on your phone's voice message app or on your computer with a mic, if you prefer, and send it over to podcast.aba.org with pileated woodpecker in the subject line. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting the podcast by joining the ABA. You get a lot more just peace of mind. You get our magazines, you get discounts to our partners, and you can get all the information you need about joining the ABA at aba.org slash join. I want to make some shout outs today to James Moeller of Columbus, Ohio, Megan Hart of Cumberland City, Tennessee, Kristen Swinehart of Osceola, Indiana, Cecilia Dumois of St. Petersburg, Florida, Alec Crawford of Toronto, Ontario, Florence Olson of Golden, Colorado, Ron Dodson of Fuera Bush, New York, Jessica and Campbell Clark of Colchester, Vermont, Melissa Kirk of Lyle, Illinois, Laura Kremen of Oakland, California, and Michelle Kaiser and family of Germantown, Maryland, who note they love the podcast, has helped to renew her love of birding. Love to hear that too. All these folks recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you all so much for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. If fans of Beyonce are the Bay Hive, and fans of Taylor Swift are Swifties. Can fans of Rufus Hummingbirds be called Salasferens? Technical production is by John Lowry, who loves the ABA area's smallest hummingbird species so much that he founded a fan group called the Kalaya Pals. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who are card-carrying members of the fan club for those shade-loving, curve-billed, tropical hummingbirds. They call themselves the Hermigos. You can find us online at ABA.org on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. I tell you, the best hummingbird experience I ever had was at a site in the Colombian Central Andes with a bunch of habituated hummingbirds. I even got a sapphire wing to drink from a feeder that I put in my mouth, a little move I called El Beso de Colibri. So I guess you could say I'm definitely a uh, sapphire wingman. 
Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Get vaccinated, folks. See you next week.